So stop me if you've heard it, but there was a doctor, a teacher, and a CEO who arrived at the pearly gates of heaven. And they were asked one by one, why should I let you into heaven? The doctor said, well, I've done lots of healing, I've done lots of good things, I've been on mission trips as a doctor, and they said, come on in to heaven. The teacher said, well, I've worked in special education, I've helped many children for 35 years, and they said, come on in. And then the CEO of a large health company said, well, I've done good things, I've worked for this company for many, many years, and they said, come on in, but you have to leave after three days. Clearly, all of you have great health care then. I just uh, <laughs> thought that one would go over a little better. My dad sent that one to me this morning. Dad, if you're watching at home, we need better material. <laughs> the, cr- the crowd didn't, uh, didn't go over so well. It does pertain to the message. Perhaps this other example will be a little more imp- uh, apl- applicable. Uh, you may have heard of the Antwerp Diamond Heist. The epicenter of the world's diamond trade is apparently in Belgium, just north of Brussels in a town called Antwerp, which is why you see a picture of the vault on the screen. It was in February of 2003, just about 20 years ago. The heist of the century took place. Even now the police can't explain exactly how it was done. How did a ring of Italian thieves, led by Leonardo Nora Bartolo, make off with $100 million worth of jewels, loose diamonds, gold, jewelry? How did they break into a vault that was two floors beneath the Antwerp Diamond Center that was thought to be impenetrable? How did they disable 10 layers of security, including infrared heat detectors, Doppler radar, a magnetic field, a seismic sensor, a metal gate, and a lock with 100 million possible combinations. I mean, did they consult Danny Ocean from Ocean's Eleven? I mean, is that how they figured it out? Because he knows how to break into vaults. Come on, you've seen that movie. How? I don't know, but they did it. They did it. Which tells us this important truth. Nothing we possess on this earth is truly secure, is 100% secure. Perhaps you have some important jewels that you keep locked up in a safe. Or maybe you have a safe deposit box at the, the bank where you keep your valuables. And you have made them as secure as you know how, because you don't want to lose them, because you don't want anybody to take them. And when the time is right, you want to be able to access those important valuables. Am I right? Yes. So you sell your car, you want to know that if I go to my safe, the title is going to be there, I can complete the transaction. If someone you love is getting married and you've saved this ring, it's been passed down from generations to generations, and you want to give it to that loved one, you want to make sure it's there. You want to keep it safe. If it's valuable, you want to keep it secure until the time is right. Well, how about your salvation? How about your salvation? Is that valuable to you? Shouldn't be more valuable than anything else in this world because it's the only thing that gets you into the next world. It should be valuable. But how do you keep it secure? 
How do you keep your salvation secure? This is one area that I know many Christians struggle and have doubts. How do I know for sure that I'm saved? I mean, can I lose my salvation? Can I walk away from my faith in Jesus? These are questions that I've been asked many times in my 17 years of pastoring. Many times. Many people have asked and wondered. And maybe you have too. Maybe you're here today wondering, I don't know. I think I'm going to heaven. I'm not sure. Or I think, I'm pretty sure I am. I've done what I think is right and I believe. And, but can I lose my salvation? Will someday I, I walk away? And I wish I could tell you that all Christians agree on this point here. I wish I could stand here and tell you that the eternal security of believers is agreed upon by all Christians, but it is not. Some churches teach that Christians can become unchristians. And that's not a word, but you know, just as much as it's not true. I'm here to tell you this morning that a genuine born-again Christian cannot be unborn any more than you can be unborn from your mother's womb. Can you be unborn from your mom and dad? No. John chapter 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. There's some beautiful babies that were born recently in this church this morning. They were born flesh by flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, Jesus said, what I'm saying to you. You must be born again. And if you're truly born again, born by the Holy Spirit, given this wonderful gift of God's grace, your eyes are open, your ears can hear the wonderful good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he is the only way, the truth, and the life. When your eyes are open to that, when you repent of disbelief, and you believe and and confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you're born again. And how exciting is it when someone is born again, when they receive God's gift and they're saved? It's really exciting. And what do we do when we get excited when something like that happens? We have a baptism, right? That's the the next step in in becoming saved or when you're saved. It's, It's the church coming together, celebrating a transformation. I point back there because behind those doors is a baptismal, in case you didn't know. But we rejoice together as the body of Christ. Just, just to, you know, if you were baptized by me um, at Life of Purpose, raise your hand. I mean, look around. This is a wonderful thing that we celebrate all the time. And you can put your hands down. And if you're a born-again Christian, say, thank you, Jesus. And if you're still seeking, if you're here today and you're like, you know what, I got invited by a friend because I heard there's a good meal. But I don't know about the church stuff. I don't know about, you know, all the other stuff. But I'll come. If you're still seeking, I just want to pray for you. And I want to pray for this message for all of us. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, may your word today, may it not fall on deaf ears. May it fall on ears that are willing to hear. And may I see truth today. And may we know that salvation comes from your Son. Jesus Christ, from his sacrifice, from his life, from his death, from his resurrection. And Father, may we know that we are eternally secure in him only. Father, I thank you for your love, and I thank you for the perseverance of the saints. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen. The title this morning is The Promise of Eternal Security. And I promise to show you the truth about your salvation because all the promises of God find their yes in Him. You might hear me repeat that a few times. That's scripture. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. I'm just going to recap kind of quickly. We're in the third message here in 2 Corinthians, I think it is, third or fourth. And I like to teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. That helps me not just pick my favorite topics to preach on. Because we all have our favorite topics to preach on, right? I mean, if it was my, up to me, every Sunday would be a fishing illustration, all right? I like fishing, and I would talk about those things. But I teach verse by verse so that the whole Word of God comes to you. You need the whole Word of God. The whole Word of God, all Scripture, God breathed. Useful for four things. Teaching us, rebuking us when we get off track, correcting us, helping us to get back on the right track, and training us so that we're equipped for God's good work. 2 Timothy 3 tells us those those words. So I want to teach the whole Word of God, and so I am. I'm going through the book of 2 Corinthians on Sunday mornings, and I'm going through the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights. You can join us anytime for either of those. When we go back to the church in Corinth, when we started this, the culture there in the city, it's a city in Greece, modern-day Greece today, we see that this uh, church had a lot of problems. They, they were a church, a, a young church, and there was just some wild stuff going on. If you read 1 Corinthians, you know what I mean. They were um, pretty liberal, which is why I'm tempted to call them first and second Californians. Um, <laughs> we like to pick on those Californians, don't we? The Apostle Paul uh, started this church about... Uh, um, when he traveled around the Mediterranean Sea, I believe on his second mission trip, and he stayed for 18 months, which was a lot longer than he would normally stay, but God opened a door, and he began to see many people become born-again Christians. And when he left, things got out of control with the gifts and all of the, the um, uh, liberal behavior and such. And so he wrote a couple harsh letters to the church, and he said, I'll return again, I would like to come back, I would like to comfort you, and and, and offer up some spiritual gifts to you. Um, but then he changed his mind. And that's what we saw in the last couple of messages. In fact, two Sundays ago, I shared a message on expectations. You know, when we expect something of someone, or someone expects something of us, and we realize that that's realistic or unrealistic. If you missed that message, check it out, um, how to respond when there's unrealistic expectations on you. Um, our website, our Facebook channel, uh, our page and our YouTube channel have those messages. So Paul changes his mind to avoid another stern visit with the Corinthians. The church had not dealt with sin in the camp. They hadn't followed through on church discipline. There was an individual in their church that was uh, committing some really bad sexual immorality, and they weren't dealing with it. And so Paul changed his plans, but it wasn't willy-nilly like they thought. It wasn't that Paul wasn't a man of his word. In fact, we'll pick it up now in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 17. If you would like a Bible, if you want to open up a Bible, um, you, we have free Bibles. They're the blue ones in the chairs, and you can take one home if you'd like. Um, if, you're, if this is your first time here, I don't know if they mentioned the coffee cups in the, in the back. Take a, take a coffee cup. Um, that's a, a free gift uh, to you for coming today at Life of Purpose. So you remember when you drink your favorite uh, coffee that you would remember Life of Purpose. 
2 Corinthians 1.17, was I vacillating, the Apostle Paul says to the church, when I wanted to come to you, do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time. Now let's be honest, we've been a little wishy-washy when it comes to attending church, haven't we? It's a Saturday evening, and you think to yourself, you know, I'm going to go to church tomorrow. I really need to go. I always feel better when I go because the people at Life of Purpose are just so genuine. They're loving. The music is always great. And boy, that Pastor Matt, man, he really knows the Bible. He's funny. I mean, he... Okay, I'll stop. Um, But then the alarm goes off Sunday morning, and you just can't seem to get out of bed. And the longer you lay there, the more you realize, oh, there's so much to do. I could just stream it at home. I've done that before. And so you change your mind and you don't go to church. Maybe you don't do that. Maybe that's the other person at your table or next to you. That's being wishy-washy. Paul wasn't like that. He's saying, I didn't do that. Verse 18, he says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes, then no. Paul was a man of his word. Remember the good old days when you were, you know, somebody said something and you were like, yeah, I trust them. They're a man of his word, a woman who can be trusted, you know. We'd spit on it, <laughs> shake on it. Man of his word, right? We miss the good old days. Well, Paul's equating that he is that kind of guy. He is trustworthy and you can, you can compare it to God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. The word faith is often the same word as trust. So verse 19, this is how Paul says why you can trust me that I did did this for the right reason. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, among you, the gospel, we, we shared the good news, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. And then my favorite verse, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. You may want to mark that verse in your Bible so you know where it is. You might want to write down the date. I used to do that when I um, was uh, sitting in the chair listening to the pastor preach. I'd mark the date, maybe the title of the sermon, and then underline, you know, for all the promises of God, find their yes in him, the main points or something like that. Or maybe you can write it in the notes in the program that we provide for you, but, but definitely want to mark that and remember that. Paul begins here uh, by referencing the promise of salvation. Remember when we shared the gospel with you, the good news, and then you believed and you put your faith in Jesus, because Jesus saves you, through him you have forgiveness? He says the answer is yes. And we might ask today, you know, are, are you sure Jesus is the Messiah? Yes. And he's the only way I can be saved? Yes. All my sins are forgiven? Yes. Even that really bad thing I did back in 2010? Yes. Are you sure I'm going to heaven? Yes. Well then, amen. Amen. And do you notice that amen in this verse is capitalized? Maybe we can bring that back up on the screen. Amen is capitalized. Because it's a capital. Uh, It's a proper noun. A proper noun. It's a reference to a person. I'm not just well at math. I was good at English, too. <laughs> Revelation 3.14. Revelation 
to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen. And then the second part of who this person is, the faithful and true witness. And then the third, the beginning of God's creation. Who's this person? Amen is a reference to Jesus. And the word amen, by the way, is a Hebrew word that we transliterated. We didn't come up with the word on our own. We just took a Hebrew word, the Hebrew language, and we just used the same word. And we put it kind of in our English way, and we call it amen. And it means truth. When Jesus said, verily, verily, if you're King James, or if you have a, a modern-day translation, verily, uh, um, truly, truly. Um, but really, it should be amen, amen, because that's what it means, truth. And then if it's said at the beginning, it's truth. If it's said at the end, it's so be it. So you often hear a preacher say amen, as in a question mark, and you say amen, because you're saying so be it. That's the truth. And that's why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Was Jesus doing things for God's glory? Yes. Amen? Amen. So be it. Yes. If he makes a promise, then he keeps his promise. Amen? Amen. You're getting the hang of it. So be it. So Paul continues with this promise of salvation that they have received with the promise of eternal security. It's not that Jesus, it's just that Jesus saves us, but that he keeps us saved. I'll rattle off verses 21 and 22, and then I'll come back to them, and, and, and we'll look at uh, them a little bit at a time. But it's God who establishes us with you in Christ. It's God who anoints us. It's God who puts us his seal on us and gives us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Boy, when you read those words, aren't they so comforting? Isn't that an amazing promise that God would give his spirit as a guarantee of our place in heaven? He's our down payment, the Holy Spirit, until our glorified bodies are given to us. We refer to them as the mansion in heaven that we want someday. That's the glorified body. So the title is The Promise of Eternal Security. The Promise of Eternal Security is where we should be at. And we're going to break down these two verses. Verse 21. It's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. God establishes, confirms us with you in Christ. In him. You should read Ephesians 1. Later on this afternoon or maybe tomorrow morning as you think about this message, as you have your devotion time, you should read Ephesians chapter 1 won't take you more than a couple minutes to read through Ephesians 1, but if you would underline in him or in Christ, you will probably do it at least 11 times. That's what Paul's trying to say in in that first chapter in Ephesians. That when you are in Christ, then you have the promises of Christ. The promise of salvation, the promise of eternal security. God has anointed us. The anointing always refers to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our anointing. 1 John 2, 20 says, if you've been anointed by the Holy One, you have have knowledge. You have knowledge. The truth of salvation. Because you need to battle the lies of the evil one, and you need to battle the doubts that come into our minds at times. 
We all have them. It's okay, Christians. We have them. We have doubts. But we battle them with truth. And John says you have the truth because you have the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus said this would take place. He says you need the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go back to, the, to my Father in heaven. I'm resurrected. I'm going to ascend to him. But in John 14, 26, he says the helper, the parakletos is the Greek word, the counselor, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, whom he did in, at Acts 2 in Pentecost. He will teach you all things to bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. When the Spirit of truth comes, he guides you into all truth. The truth is the promise of eternal security is for you in Christ. So don't believe anything that the devil whispers in your ear because the devil is a liar. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 2 Corinthians 1.22 And who has also put his seal on us. God seals you. That means he secures you. When you read Ephesians 1 on your own, you'll see this verse in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He'll go on to say in chapter 4, do not grieve this Holy Spirit. By him you were sealed for the day of redemption. You are secured. The other day I got a letter in the mail. I went to open the letter but it was already opened. It was as if no one licked the envelope and sealed it. So anybody could have read the contents of this letter to me. Or maybe um, I wondered why uh, they didn't lick the envelope. I think maybe they saw that Seinfeld episode, perhaps. Um, that was for my friend Scott, who loves Seinfeld. How, how many people could have read that letter because it wasn't sealed. Back in the old days, in the first century, if the king sent a letter to someone, he would seal it with his signet ring, his private mark. And if you received a letter, then, and it had that mark on it, then you know no one else saw it, no one else read it, and only the person whom it was addressed to could open it. When we get into Revelation chapter 5 on Wednesday, John will see a scroll with seven seals. He weeps because nobody's worthy to open the scroll and break the seals. That's how secure this scroll is. And as he's weeping, one of the elders says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David? Jesus. He is the one worthy to open the seals. Now think about this. If you have been sealed by God's private mark, his signet ring, the Holy Spirit, then nobody can break the seal. Not even you. Nobody. Only Jesus can open God's seal. And given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Some translations say down payment. If you ever made a down payment on something, you know that it's yours to purchase. And that's exactly what God plans to do with you if you're born again. He plans to glorify you someday, purchase you. 
Along with Ephesians 1, you should read Romans 8. Romans 8, perhaps one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible. In Romans 8, verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Or some like to translate it, Daddy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children of God, then we're heirs, heirs with God with, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order we might also be glorified with him. Christians will suffer awaiting the glorification. I can't make it any clearer than that. Paul does a great job. We're sons and daughters by adoption through the Holy Spirit, which we call being born again. We're all created by God. This is true. But how do we become a child of God? The Holy Spirit. Adopted by the Holy Spirit is what makes us a child of God. And what can separate us from being a child of God? He goes on to say in verse 37, All these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's talking about our eternal security there. Is there anything that can separate us from being a born-again Christian from God? No. Anything that can remove the Holy Spirit? No. Do you agree? And you're picking up what I'm laying down. Which brings us to the application part of this message. I've given you the truth. I've given you the best meat you'll ever eat, spiritually speaking. Better than anything that's downstairs. But how do you respond? God wants you to respond. Our response to God is always our worship of God. When we don't respond to God, it's worship of self. The exact opposite. So how are we responding to this truth? I think that when we have been studying Revelation on Wednesday nights, I've noticed an important theme in the book of Revelation. It's the call for the church to overcome. It's a call to the saints. That's us. Okay? Any Christian, born-again Christian, is called a saint in the Bible. It's the call for us to overcome, to persevere. The perseverance of the saints. And I know when you read Revelation, you, you can't help but think, think about, oh, this is all about the end times. You know, this is about uh, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, oh my. Uh, this is the seven this and the seven that, the seven churches and the seven seals and the seven trumpets and all the sevens. All of that's fascinating. I mean, we're loving it on Wednesday nights, aren't we? Those that are coming? It's, it's fantastic. But don't miss Revelation, the call for the church to persevere. Don't miss it. I mean, every church, the seven churches, he writes, to conquer. You are to conquer. That's the Greek word nikeo, and it means to be victorious, to overcome the persecution, to persevere. Revelation 2.7, I have this for you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says 
to the churches. By the way, the seven churches were not unique. It's just not written to those seven churches. It represents the church. Seven is a number of completeness. And so he's speaking to the church, us today. And when he says this, it's speaking to us. To the one who conquers, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Seven different times he gives the, uh, the result is heaven, is eternal security for those that conquer, that persevere. And you might read Revelation 2 and 3 where it talks to these seven churches if a Christ, and you might read it as an if-then statement. If a Christian perseveres, then he will go to heaven. But that would be reading it incorrectly because it doesn't read like that. It says, the one who conquers will go to heaven forever. It's not an if-then statement. It's an encouraging statement. For he goes on to say in Revelation 13, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And in Revelation 14, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Here is a call for us, church, to persevere. If you're born again, truly, you will persevere. But you might think, well, wait a minute. Let me play the advocate here. What about those who, who said that they were Christians and then they became unchristians? What do we say about those people that look like Christians for a long time, act like a Christian? Years and years, they might even go to a church, even serve in a church. They might even have been a pastor, and then they flat out reject God, denounce their faith. It's called apostasy. What do we say about those people? Well, John says something that I think I'll just repeat. He says in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain they they, are, they all are not of us. And we have this saying, you know, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, then it's a duck. But that doesn't apply here. The correct saying would be, if it looks like a duck and acts like a duck and perseveres like a duck, well, then it applies. So your response to God, your response to God is to persevere. That's your worship of God to persevere. That when somebody throws a little doubt at you, when, when something happens and, and you're, you're questioning some things, that you don't give up on your faith. That you don't, um, you're not tossed to and fro like a wave, as it says in one of the epistles. That you will stick to the word and the word has been given to you today. We have this saying that a lot of people like to, to throw around, but I wonder how, how deep they understand, deeply they understand it. And the saying is, once saved, we're always saved. And we love that, because that gives us that quick burst of like, comfort. Once saved, always saved. But I've given you the reason why you're saved. Once saved, always saved. And the reason why you're always saved today that's the most important part, is the eternal security, the promise of eternal security, because it's not what you do. The joke I opened up with was not theologically correct. It's not what we do that gets us into heaven. It's what he did. 
because all our promises of God find their yes in Christ. So I want to encourage you with one final verse. might be the most encouraging verse in the whole Bible. I always find it so comforting, especially when I'm feeling a little bit low and feeling like maybe I let God down, maybe I'm not doing enough. And I just go to this verse and I'm just like, yeah, I love this verse. It's the best. Have I built up enough anticipation? Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am sure of this. I am sure of this. I am 100% sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. You've got to own that verse. You've got to memorize that verse. Because anytime there's a doubt, anytime you're not having a good day, Anytime you feel like, oh, I don't know. He who began a good work in me, in you, will bring it to completion. Amen? We are a child of God because of what God has done. What he has done. And only because of what he has done. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this promise of eternal security. I thank you that you love us. You care for us. I thank you that you have blessed us with all things. I praise your name, Father. We love you. We need you. God, when we have doubts, when we're uncertain, when we're feeling discouraged, may we know that we have this promise in you. That all the promises of God, all the promises of you, Find their yes in Jesus Christ. May we go to your word. May we be comforted. May we be encouraged. And and what you began in us, we know you're going to complete it. Father, I thank you so much for your love. In Jesus' name I pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Amen.